Hello, and welcome to the Rocketeer Minute podcast, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, for the next 109 episodes, we are going to be talking about Walt Disney's greatest adventure film, the 1991 Joe Johnson-directed movie, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And my name is Hal Bryan, and I'm a senior editor with the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And uh, Jim, I could not be more excited about this uh, absolutely ridiculous endeavor that we're starting out on. It's a it's a it's a wonderful day. It's it feel a lot like the Rocketeer. You know, you don't know where you're going to land, but hopefully we'll be uh, you know uh, jelly side up. We'll, exactly. we'll see how it goes. And I am but, wearing a helmet for safety's sake. Awesome. Yes, yes. Just make sure that you have uh, you have all your buttons strapped up on on your on your leather jacket. Right. Uh, this this is a fun thing, and I have to make an open confession. I openly love this movie. There's nothing wrong with this movie to me. You can't. <laughs> You can't say a bad thing about it because I know better. I'm in the exact same boat. There's, uh, you, you might hold a gun to my head and say, well, maybe there are, are sort of technically better films. But I, I can't think of another one for which I have just more more just pure affection beginning to end. There's just nothing about it I don't just adore. It was such an amazing confluence of great actors, a fantastic script, uh, an excellent director, and of course, uh, the thing that kind of wraps it all up in a neat bow is the uh, the music of James Horner, which uh, this is one of his best performances. I, I think it it may be the best uh, composition he's ever created as a, as a whole. It's, it it really ties the whole movie together. It it soars. You hear this thing, and you can't help but think of flying and uh, and just the uh, the lure of the skies with with the with the sound, just with a piano. It's it's amazing how it how it just pulls you right into the movie. Absolutely. That uh, it starts so gentle and so easy. It's not, uh, you know, it's almost the antithesis, the perfect antithesis of a typical action movie score. Um, it's not nervous anticipation. It's just this, it's just this gentle uh, excitement and the, the way that it, that it flows as these hangar doors start opening. We see the blue sky. Uh, it's, uh, it's everything I love about, about flying. It's just, it's a beautiful day. We're going to go out. We're going to have a really nice time up in the air. Yeah, and I guess we can we can set the scene. This is uh, we are going to find out later. It is 1938, and uh, and it follows very closely uh, the original writer Dave Stevens, the creator of the Rocketeer, was a stickler for uh, accuracy on things. And uh, this this movie starts at dawn on an October day in 1938. And uh, well, we're getting we're getting just a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about. Credits are always a difficult thing to talk about, but let's talk about these opening credits. We're gonna we're gonna see the main thing that was wrong with this movie uh, right here in the opening, where uh, Walt Disney Pictures presents. What <laughs> uh, one of the biggest uh, letdowns for this movie and keeping it from being a box office success was releasing it through uh, Walt Disney Pictures. The uh, at the time, we'll set the stage. This is 1991. This is actually the third week of June in 1991 when uh, when the Rocketeer premiered. This is directly in between two two Disney movies, two great Disney movies. The uh, first, The Little Mermaid, back in 1989, and uh, Beauty and the Beast, which would be coming out in September of 91. So, Walt Disney movies at the time, the picture the picture version of it, and it still is to some extent, it's considered kids movies. Uh, Walt Disney had also the, the the Walt Disney production companies had Touchstone Pictures available to them, which was uh, kind of an alternate title uh, card that they could put at the front of more adult features. Um, you'd seen it in movies like 
well, probably the most famous one was the uh, the first big one was Pretty Woman. And it was considered, if you didn't hear the word Disney, you thought, oh, this is probably for adults. But in slapping that uh, Walt Disney pictures on the front of this, it kind of condemned it to being a matinee show. Well, it's interesting, too, that... Uh that they say it twice in effect. We got Walt Disney pictures, then then boom, Walt Disney pictures presents. Do we mention Walt Disney? Yes. And by the way, (laughs) this is Walt Disney pictures. I think that one card that one, well, there are a couple of things that caused the uh, problems with, uh, with the success of this movie, but uh, sending it through Walt Disney's uh, made audiences when they were looking at this thing. Oh, I don't want to go see a kid's film. Other two big things on this was uh, the poster, while beautiful, the the, uh, the original poster that came out for this was, you know, it's a triumph of Art Deco. It was a beautiful right. uh, thing with a stylized picture of a, looked like a robot-like man flying through the skies. Uh, that really really didn't tell you much about what the movie was about or whether, you know, an, ad, an average action film moviegoer would want to go see this. It looks more like an art film. It, it was poorly marketed. And then on top of it, it was up against some really amazing uh competition uh, at the time two weeks previously to this robin hood prince of thieves with uh kevin costner had premiered to a 25 million dollar box of his opening this was the beginning of the summertime and uh it you know it was out there making uh, making tons of money a, a week a, a week after this movie premiered uh it was completely you know uh, tsunamied away with uh, terminator 2 judgment day so it was it was up again, and that was a you know everybody knew that movie was you know you see Arnold Schwarzenegger on a motorcycle you think oh I wonder if that's an action movie yeah this is right. <laughs> pretty clear so, so that kind of drew, uh, drew away all those uh, other dollars and uh, yeah it just it, it was difficult for that weekend to uh, to come up against these movies um, you know it's funny I think back to that uh, that summer when this movie uh, came out or you know certainly maybe the preceding spring. Um, I had read uh, the Stevens graphic novel, and I, it wasn't quite the. It wasn't at the point where I am now, where I've tracked down you know other single issues and first appearances and things like that. But I'd read the basic story and and completely fallen in love with it. And I remember, but having no inkling that a movie was coming, and it's hard to imagine that now, uh, you know. But this was obviously the, the pre-internet days. Um, if it wasn't in Starlog magazine, and if I didn't happen to see Starlog on the on the uh, newsstand. I did, you know, I did, you didn't really know what was happening. And I'm in a theater seeing something else that I've long since forgotten. But then all of a sudden there's a trailer for The Rocketeer. And, you know, my eyes still hurt from how wide they were opened staring at this. And I was just overjoyed to see a to see a trailer for it. And all I wanted to do was then go watch that trailer again. Now, you know, I could have pulled my smartphone out of my pocket, watched it a hundred times if I wanted. But back then it was just a matter of, of uh, watching and waiting and trying to figure out when's it coming out? How can I be there? How many times can I afford to see it? <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it looked like the, the trailer for this, this show is beautiful. It really sold it, you know, sold heavily. You, you, you saw the action. Uh, there was Timothy Dalton in the scenes and you thought, oh, James Bond is going to be in this movie. <laughs> and this was, you know, right, right in the pocket there where he was doing the living daylights. And, uh, right. uh, you know, uh, he was a brief, a brief run as Tim Dalton, but, you know, he was the guy in charge. And I think uh, Di- the Disney folks finally figured this out a bit too late. The day or the week after the movie premiered, they released the new poster, which features the, the more familiar uh, sights and sounds you see, you know, Billy Campbell, you know, holding onto his helmet and, 
the amazing uh, Jennifer Connelly in profile and uh, Timothy Dalton, you know, almost center screen there to say these are there are real people in this movie and it's not a cartoon and you can actually watch something and look look explosions. So they uh, picked up the ball a little bit too late. And it and it's fine for kids, but you know it's it's just it's not just for kids. So we see the uh, the, the Walt Disney Pictures uh, fade out. And uh, the next thing that comes up is in, in association with uh, Silver Screen Partners 4. Now, Silver Screen Partners has a, had a long history at the time of, uh, they originally set up by a New York investment banker who was financing early pictures for HBO. When HBO stopped being, uh, well, home box office was the title, but mostly they they had paid for things like, uh, you know, prize fighting. You're watching, uh, you're watching boxing matches and special events like that, mostly sporting things. But HBO was trying to expand into um, made-for-TV movies or movies that were capable of being released in a, uh, in a theater and then shown on HBO. There just wasn't enough uh, software for, uh, for the upcoming rise of cable. So Silver Screen Partners came about, and they, they were a limited partnership where they'd pool money, uh, build a movie, and then show, show, it in a, show it in a theater and expected to make half their money back. And then make the other half by uh, uh, licensing it to HBO for being the first place to show on air, and uh, they they've they did a lot of films. Uh, as we said before, um, Pretty Woman was uh, was a touchstone feature, but they but they were also sponsored by uh, Silver Screen Partners and uh, things like The Little Mermaid. Now, forgive this uh, potentially ignorant question, but but were there Silver Screen Partners one through three? Yes, yeah, there were there were there were earlier ones. There the earlier, by the okay. yeah, there, it was just what it was was there were different there were different groups of limited partners getting together, okay. and uh, Silver Screen Partners had done, uh, gosh, I, <laughs> I should, probably should have looked it up, but but they they like Silver Screen Partners one or they were just known as Silver Screen Partners. Uh, they had done a lot of movies in the late seventies that showed up on HBO, and uh, yeah, I think like all the right moves, that kind of stuff. It, it, chances are, if you saw a movie on HBO, it was probably sponsored by Silver Screen Partners. So um, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure like Chud and all those other, those other monster <laughs> movies were also paid for. But as as wow, they so as, we're, we're there already, is yeah, we're, we're, what we're down, we're down to there. But you know, it was it was. It was an hour and a half long movie, and it had appeared in a theater somewhere. And then they could say, "Look, just off the just off the silver screen, here's a he'll, right. here's a silver screen partners movie." But by the time they got to uh, the, their fourth iteration, uh, they were doing they were doing movies like uh, well, Dick Tracy. <laughs> um, but they also financed the Little Mermaid. They did a lot of Disney films and a lot of Touchstone films. Right. The Rocketeer was, you know, right in the middle of all things like uh, White Fang, Three Men and a Little Lady, uh, The Rescuers Down Under, um, as I said, Dick Tracy, Where the Heart Is, Dead Poet Society, Turner and Hooch, all all of those movies that you, you know, saw every other Thursday on uh, on HBO and forever and ever. Uh, They're probably still running them on HBO On Demand. Uh, those movies were uh, were the production company for uh, for HBO and for Disney. So, you know, generally they look for family friendly movies or at least movies that the entire you know the entire family could go to. That was that was all happening back then. And Rocketeer happened to be one of those movies. And uh, Dick Tracy was 1990, if I remember right. So a bit before maybe the, the previous summer. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so was Pretty Woman. Right. Yeah. And it's it talk about two you know two extremes in terms of uh, of success. And you know, it's not what we're here to talk about. But Dick Tracy should have been a much better movie. You know, a bright, vivid uh, period piece comic book adaptation. 
And yeah, uh, if, and, if somebody ever does the Dick Tracy movie, they, they have a lot yeah. of material to go through. They really do. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if there's any possibility that 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 soured moviegoers a little bit. We saw if if probably not much uh, in terms of the Rocketeer because not that many people if knew that this was a this was a comic book and graphic novel character. But I just you start thinking, well, it's a you know it's a Disney live action period piece based on a comic book character and and Dick Tracy certainly didn't uh, didn't do what they thought it would do but who knows Yeah that 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 could be it I mean I think Dick Tracy Dick Tracy's problem was that they thought that well if we put enough stars in it it'll it'll sell we can sell whatever and they just right. they didn't concentrate on the story or the you know the production values but uh yeah I mean it could have it could have been that people were tired of it uh they didn't they could have sold this movie a little bit more like um like Indiana Jones I think Absolutely. if it pressed it as more of an indiana jones thing they there there were a couple of uh there were a couple of negatives that were brought up that weren't really negatives they were talking about they shouldn't have said it in the 30s and they shouldn't you know and it's like it it has to be set in the 30s it's a guy wearing a you know an art deco helmet you've got right and flying a flying a gb they probably should have gotten rid of that rocket too because that's just distracting yeah yeah I want to see him in the scene i want to see him flying away yeah yeah, stick around billy campbell plane guy yeah so it (laughs) It, it, there, there, there are enough things wrong with it, but uh, from what we understand, there, there is a new Rocketeer movie in the works. Uh, I don't know when it'll come out or how, how far into development hell they are, but uh, maybe they'll try doing more things. It's set in the, it's supposed to be set in the uh, post-war era, maybe in the early right. 50s. So we'll see how, how that turns out. And I, I have heard rumblings that it's, that it's probably set in the same universe. And, you know, does that mean we'll we'll get a cameo from from Bill Campbell, even though I think too many years have gone by? Well, they, they could, you know, end with the new young rocketeer handing him the rocket pack on a rocky crag in an island off the coast of Ireland. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. As long as he doesn't say anything. Yes. It just kind of right. looks sullenly. Uh, yes. The helmet awakens. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the search for Jenny, but we'll, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll see how, we'll, we'll see how, it, how it goes. Um, so yeah, we, we are, so we get, we get past the money man and then it'll say a Gordon company production. And we will talk about the Gordons a little bit later. So I don't want to talk too much about it, but these are the guys that were the actual producers, the ones working the work in the field. And they're, they're two brothers and we'll, we'll chat with them later. And of course, finally, the, uh, uh, the last pre-title, uh, card is a Joe Johnson film and, uh, Joe Johnson, right. Joe Johnson is probably one of the bigger heroes of this movie. He got the look and feel exactly right. Uh, he definitely knows how to tell a story, and he definitely knows how to uh, how to set the scene. Uh, you feel like you're watching 1938 here. You're not watching some idealized version of 1938, even though it is a quite idealized version of 1938. This this movie is the reason why Joe Johnson was uh, picked to make uh, Captain America uh, the first Avenger, because he just... If you want to feel like you're you're back there in the pre-war or World War II era, uh, Joe's your man. Well, you know the Stevens graphic novel. I, I've always thought of it, and and I'm not the first to say this, but it's it's a love letter to the era. You know, it's it's absolutely. And Johnston did the same thing with the film. I, you get the feeling that uh, that he felt exactly the same way about the era that uh, that the late uh, Dave Stevens did. Yeah, he definitely loved it, and you know, and and he appeals to anyone who who knows that era and loves it as well. I mean, everything, the art, the artwork, the design, the you know all the the streamlining and the lightning bolts and all that jazz. 
it's it's not overused, but it, it 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 you're so immersed in that time when you're here. You don't have to think, well, that's you know, how do they film that or how do they do this? It's you want to watch the story and understand where it was in the uh, in the time it was. It it really it, it kind of hugs the trilon and perisphere and and puts them out there for you. You you, you know that if you know the time, you can you can smile and say they got this right. Right. And, and that goes down to even the smallest of details, you know, as, uh, as these episodes roll along, we'll be, uh, we'll be going a little crazy with that, but there's, you know, there's some details on, you know, the model of an airplane on a desk somewhere in the background that you might see for a fraction of a second uh, is still appropriate for the era. And that's, that's unbelievable. And we'll t- talk of course, a lot about, uh, about the flying in the movie and about the airplanes they got together for it and, and all of the aviation that went into this movie. And this to me is really one of the last great uh great aviation movies uh you know before the before the cg era yeah you're, you're uh, seeing and, a lot of you're seeing real planes doing you know doing real banks and, right. and and loops and all kinds of stuff this i would put this and uh the great waldo pepper as the two movies to see if you want to see uh great aerial work before all the computers took over this uh, th- that that pairing i think would be a good one if uh, absolutely yeah, especially in terms of sort of non, you know, non, uh, non-combat, non-war films. You know, uh, if I were to expand it to those, I would throw in uh, the Battle of Britain in 69 and the Tora 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 in 1970 in terms of, you know, wonderful real, uh, real flying. Um, and, you know, so much what we have today, there's a bit of real flying and then so much CG and it's just not, it's just not the same. Yeah, that, that... It makes uh, airplane nerds like me uh, wince and laugh. Yeah, yeah, it, it, but uh, we are we're gonna start seeing right now uh, real a real. We start with a real airplane. The uh, the doors are are being peeled back very uh, very cinematically, and uh, we see that beautiful red monoplane parked across uh, from uh, from obviously a hangar. And we're gonna talk about uh, that airplane and of course the Hero GB quite a bit in some upcoming episodes. But uh, that's our first glimpse of. Uh, it's a it's a replica or a recreation. It's a real airplane, but uh, recreating uh, the uh, the racer known as uh, Miss Los Angeles. It's a brown aircraft company, a B two, and uh, you know beautiful job recreating that airplane, just as it was the the hero uh, uh, the hero airplane, which we're going to get a glimpse of here in just another second or two, aren't we? Oh yeah, yeah. The and of course it it opens there with uh, as we're seeing Miss Los Angeles. Uh, we're seeing our hero our hero of the show, Bill Campbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Campbell uh, at the time this was his biggest role he was um Bill Campbell if not if not for this movie I think he would have gone down in the early part of his career as the guy who wasn't Will Riker he uh he actually was going to be uh Captain Picard's number one up until I think it I think it ended like two weeks before they were starting the film and they really I hadn't hadn't heard that one that's yeah they had gotten Jonathan they they hired Jonathan Frakes at the last minute and said sorry Bill you can uh you can come back on a guest shot, and he he did come back uh, for a single shot. If you look for the uh, early, I think it was season season two episode of called the Outrageous Okona, where he was a, a space pirate, or a, well, would be oh, space right. pirate. But yeah, he I mean he could have had a whole different career here and wound up uh, you know directing the Thunderbirds kids movie instead of uh, <laughs> oh, instead of going on to uh, Once and Again and a bunch of other uh, you know thirty something type uh, type shows. And you you had to bring the Thunderbirds movie into this as a <laughs> well if you want to as this. a lifelong diehard beloved Jerry Anderson fan that. Uh, I don't know. That movie's not as quite as horrible as it could be, but it's close. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to give uh, 
you give the late Bill Paxton some room there, but it was it was everybody had a paycheck yeah. that day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. for heaven's sake, Gandhi! Oh my gosh! <laughs> anyway, let's. <laughs> Let's, let's, well, but we digress. Yes, yes, yes. But but Bill Campbell is our hero in here, and he he is perfectly cast. I, I can't think of anybody that would have fit into this. Uh, Joe, both Joe Johnson and Dave Stevens agreed at the time that Bill Campbell was their Rocketeer. He he actually went out. He he had never heard of the Rocketeer when they were casting for this movie, but he he bought a copy of the he bought a copy of one of the comics and took it to the barber shop and said, "I need this haircut." And they, sure enough, they they chopped it, they chopped his hair just right, so he had that you know six cowlicks going every which way, and he does right. he does look like uh, Cliff Cliff Secord, our our hero in this movie. He does. He looks like he just stepped right off the cover of the book. Yeah. And by the way, if you haven't read the uh, graphic novel, please uh, go out. It, this it, you you may have seen the movie and loved it, but you will love even more the or maybe just as much as. Uh, the Dave Stevens artwork. It's it's a fantastic collection. Um, he Dave did not create many uh, many. He, he didn't leave much behind. Unfortunately, we lost him uh, about a decade ago from the, from the time of this recording uh, to cancer. But uh, his artwork is fantastic, and uh, seeing him tell a story uh, with with his pen and ink uh, is an amazing thing. Uh, we have a place online. If you go to our uh, our website, RocketeerMinute.com. Uh, just go to the shop section. You can pick up a bunch of uh, Dave Stevens uh, artwork and and books. But really, look at the look at the comics and see there. I must warn you in advance. There's a major difference in the from from the movie. It's not as family friendly as the movie is, but uh, definitely something to to check out if you want to know the the full uh, Rocketeer verse. And uh, and a, a, another quick warning is that uh, you'll look at it, you'll get into it. Uh, and it will undoubtedly spark a small obsession, <laughs> and you'll you'll be spending your life thinking, "Gosh, is there what else has he done? Uh, can I spend hundreds of dollars on the big, uh, the big, beautiful, uh, oversized slipcase hardcover books that collect all of the artwork?" Um, it's it 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 boggles my mind. I know we'll talk about uh, Stevens more uh, in upcoming episodes, but it just it boggles my mind why, you know, why isn't he? Uh, as well known strictly for his artwork as say Alex Ross. Yeah, I think I, I, I put him right up there. I think it's just just the matter that he was not prolific. I think was the uh, the biggest problem that there there isn't a lot uh, of his that that we see. I mean, it's like right. Coleridge and and writing about Kublai Khan and Xanadu. You just don't have enough. You wish there were more, but there there isn't. So uh, uh, just just make do with what we have, and uh, you know hopefully we'll have more things. By the way, the, the Rocketeer series, even though we uh, we no longer have Dave Stevens, the Rocketeer um, uh, series of of comic books is still out there, and uh, people are making new stuff. There's actually uh, while we are recording this, there will be a new uh, high flying adventures book coming out, um, which will also be available. I'm trying to get some of the artists who. Uh, worked, you know, worked on on the stories for that. For that, uh, hopefully, we'll have them later on during the during this show. Uh, but but there there are new Rocketeer adventures that you can read uh, on online or not online, but you can order online. Uh, but but check us out. We also have that at, at our shop in at RocketeerMinute.com. Uh, and speaking of uh, heroes, we we now are getting our first glimpse of the hero plane. This minute, uh, we see the uh, a radial engine. And a propeller with uh, snake eyes and a four-leaf clover, so a little bit of good and bad luck in a circle. Uh, how? Where? Where does that? Do you know where that uh, that nose art comes from? You know, actually, off the top of my head, I don't. I'll have to dig into that a little bit more as we get uh, as we get into uh, upcoming episodes. 
Um, I I want to say uh, without committing to it that it uh, you know that it was uh, appropriate and period to the uh, to the original airplane that this one recreates the the GB Model Z. But you know what? Let me confirm that, and we'll uh, we'll dig into that deeper uh, in an upcoming episode. My original my undergraduate degree was uh, film. Uh, creation and one of the things that uh, my film teachers taught me was that uh, when you zoom in close you limit information and we are getting very limited information about what this plane is that's moving by we're seeing uh, the cowling we're seeing that nose art we see uh, you know rivets and uh, and turnbuckles and all kinds of things as it passes in front of the screen so it's just kind of this amorphous shape that we're going to see a lot more of uh, in, in the next few minutes. Um, but o- right. over it, we see uh, another another title for a cast member who is a, a great, great actor, Alan Arkin. He uh, decades and decades of, uh, of, of great films. Can, consistently, he, I don't know who his casting agent was, but they did a great job. I mean, he was, I, I first knew of him uh, when I was a kid. I was taken to see the movie Poppy, where he was, uh, he was the head of a, of a, a Puerto Rican family that moved to a Spanish Harlem and he had to, uh, he was a single dad and took care of his family and uh great. I, I totally believed he was, he was from Puerto Rico and barely spoke English. And I didn't, I, I, I that was my, that was my first introduction to uh, Alan Arkin. I started seeing him in a bunch of other movies and thinking this guy's fantastic. And he, he plays everything so low key. You don't notice that he is a star. He was in, um, he was in a, a Carl Reiner uh, comedy called "The Russians Are Coming." The Russians are coming, where he was a, a Russian, and he was, you know, he's a Russian submarine captain. It's like, oh, that's that guy. That's the, that's the guy who was the Puerto Rican guy in the last movie I just saw. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned not only the Russians, but you mentioned seeing him as, you know, uh, a character actor playing this foreign part. Because um, I realize this sounds like something. Oh, you must have just looked this up. But I, I have, I've known him since I was. I known of him. I don't know Alan Arkin. He's not. Uh, he's not here with me today. Um, <clears throat> known of him since I was about ten years old. And there was a made-for-TV movie that I remember was for some reason sort of a big deal around our house. We made the whole family got together. We really wanted to watch it, but it was the defe- uh, excuse me, the defection of Seamus Kuderka. Oh yeah, it was about this Soviet. Uh, I, I think he was a merchant marine or so, or whatever the sort of the equivalent was who who leapt from one ship to another to to escape and get out of uh, get out of communist uh, Soviet Russia and. And, uh, and I, so from that, at that point, I thought, oh, wow, they actually, they got a, they got a Russian guy to play this, you know, and of course, 78, that's still a pretty strong, uh, pretty strong Cold War era, uh, for, from our childhood. Yeah. And I, I know my kids know him from Edward Scissorhands and, oh, sure. and, uh, I mean, probably his most famous one was the, uh, the Mike Nichols movie, the, uh, Catch 22 and, uh, he was uh, Yasarian in that movie, and he had, he had a really ca- carried a lot of that film. And yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it was a comedy, but not quite a comedy. And you're just, it was very confusing. But he managed to, you know, make this absurdist movie. He was kind of the organizing sensibi- sensibility for the whole thing. You know, it's really, it's it's funny. Forgive uh, yet another tangent, but to those people listening, uh, when you get to know Jim and and me, you'll realize that's all we've got. Our tangents, uh, but uh, as we're recording this uh, this this weekend, I'm finishing up uh, a feature story for a magazine for uh, the Experimental Aircraft Association where I work. We have a uh, we have a B twenty five bomber in our collection, uh, and it was uh, it was one of the ones in the film Catch twenty two. So I'm it, it's so funny you mention that right now because I'm kind of up to my neck in that movie and the history and things like that. So we've <laughs> we've got this B twenty five bomber. We're going to have it flying. Uh, 
you know, in the next couple of years. And so right now I'm, you know, everywhere I look, it's catch 22 this. And, and uh, so I feel like I'm just, just uh, like up to my eyes in it. Yeah. He, he, he's, he's everywhere though. I mean, Alan Arkin, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I can remember seeing in a, uh, a movie that I, I was in Tennessee and I had nothing to do that night. I was, I was working uh, for, for an oil company and I wound up uh, going to see a movie and it was the in-laws with, uh, with him and Peter Falk. And I, to this day, I keep seeing him running around on an airport uh, with Peter Falk yelling serpentine, serpentine, trying to get him to, <laughs> to act like a spy and avoid uh, being shot at. And I just, he plays such a frustrated guy. And in this, in this movie, he, he gets to be a little bit lower key than his normal frantic self. Right. Yeah. You see element, a little bit elements of that frustration, but it's more just sort of a, you know, a tired, a slightly tired exasperation, but, but, uh, he's so good at that, uh, as you said, the frustration piece of it, but then, you know, all the affection that he, he actually has for Cliff, uh, usually expressed when Cliff is either in the airplane or out of frame. My wife has a kind of a yardstick that she uses against uh, things things that she really enjoys. And one of the things that she says is that when you're watching a movie, the, the way you can tell you really enjoy it when you can't decide who your favorite character is because everyone who's currently on the screen is your favorite character. And I think this movie has that certain bit. I mean, you say to yourself, "Oh, I really, you know, I really like Billy Campbell. Oh, I really like Alan Arkin. I really, but you, you do that with, you know, oh, I really like it when Timothy Dalton. Well, we'll talk about Timothy Dalton later. But everybody in this movie, when you see them, like, oh, I love that guy. I love this girl. And she's, they really, and that's, I think that is probably why I enjoy this movie so much is that there's so many likable characters, and these people do their jobs so well. At you believe that Alan Arkin this time is. A uh, you know an aeronautical engineer who uh, who wanders around uh, fixing things with uh, chewing gum and and bailing wire and and does a good job right. of, of doing that and uh, and tries to keep as upbeat as possible. We're going to end the the first this first minute here with a with a character actor going by. Actually, he's the first time we we see somebody on the screen that has a recognizable face, and that's the character Goose played by uh, Don Pugsley. He doesn't get uh, front billing on any of these things. He'll be in the in the back credits uh, about a hundred minutes from now. Um, but, but Don, uh, Don Pugsley is, uh, y- you've seen him in a million things and, uh, and you'll know his face immediately. Uh, here he's pushing the tail of the GB, uh, out toward its destiny with whatever's, whatever's coming in the next minute. And that's that first, uh, first glimpse. Now, you know, I, I describe myself as an airplane nerd. I wear that mantle proudly. So for me, if I didn't know this was a, you know, was a GB from the very first frame, then I, then, uh, then I, I have no business being here. Yeah. But it is, it's nice that just as, as you see Goose, that's also you, you just see that GB logo, that stylized, uh, stylized GB cursive print, uh, indicating, of course, the Granville brothers, who were the the designers and manufacturers of these airplanes. We'll talk more about that. Yeah, and I keep wondering, you know, as seeing the GB, I wonder how much Doug Chang was uh, uh, affected by the color scheme of seeing the GB, a beautiful, you know, black and yellow. It's the colors of a B. Uh, when, when he designed the uh, Naboo, uh, the Naboo ships on uh, Phantom Menace, this it seems. Oh, that's a good point. It, it seems to be the same color scheme: the black up front, yellow in the back, and. Um, it, it's just such a striking color that, uh, it, you know, it's high visibility, uh, everybody from, well, the, the, the designers, uh, the designers of the GB to, uh, Werner von Braun used that to see things far up in the sky. And, and we'll see a lot of that as we look at the other airplanes in the movie too, that they weren't afraid of using bold colors on that beautiful bright red with black trim, the, the Miss Los Angeles sitting there. 
uh, all kinds of things like that. They just uh, we don't see that so much anymore. No today, and, airplanes it, usually white. <laughs> I think that's a common. Uh, I mean, I've I've been I've been in been in lots of uh, museums talking with curators and things like that. I think that's one of the biggest surprises that uh, many people have when they visit actual you know uh, relics of the past when they see the when they see the planes from from uh, especially in in general aviation uh we have a tendency of thinking of the past in black and white we have we we think that all these things are different shades of gray but i think when you see them live in person when you're when you're looking at this stuff it is a, a riotous group of colorings um i can think of uh it, there's a there's one in the national air and space museum the vin fizz which you would ne- right. you would never guess has this most lurid purple uh, you know, the, it, Vin Fizz was a grape soda, and that's why. And yep. the the Vin Fizz average is it's like naming a plane the Pepsi Cola or the the Red Bull. So Vin Fizz was uh, was painted on the sides of the wings of this uh, aerobatic plane. It's just this brilliant purple. It's faded over the years, but you can imagine this thing flying in the sky and going, "What is that?" So uh, you know, these things were attention getting devices, and uh, you know, partially for safety, you didn't want to slam into another plane that was in the sky with you so uh, having it painted some color other than you know sky blue uh, that that was a, a great safety reason but it it really is a, a kind of a an, a doorway to the past that you, you realize these people actually knew their stuff in full color absolutely wow well this this was our first minute of of the show we've done uh, have to make a confession as we're going through this some of these are out of order so we may talk about things more than once but uh, there are many great episodes to come and thank you for thank you for being with us here on the on our first minute. Uh, we've we've got uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about, and I don't want to don't want to push it all to one episode. But yeah, please please stay tuned. Uh, sign up for us on iTunes and on Google Play wherever you're listening to this on your mobile device. Uh, you can find us by looking for uh, Rocketeer Minute. We are also uh, there's a couple places you can find us on on social media. Uh, the ever present Twitter. Uh, look for uh, Rocketeer Minute. You can also go to um, Facebook, the Rocketeer Minutes uh, Bulldog Cafe, where we get together and talk about every one of these single minutes. Uh, you can pick up you can pick up past episodes, and as we were talking about shopping for a cool Rocketeer swag at uh, our great big website, RocketeerMinute.com. We've got all the episodes here. We've got places for you to comment on stuff. You can even send us emails and tell us how much you like or don't like the show. But uh, we, we take all your comments and, and ponder them endlessly. One thing we do want to express is our gratitude to uh, the two guys who pioneered and uh, promoted or evangelized the Movies by Minute format. That, of course, is uh, Pete the Retailer and uh, comic book Alex of the Star Wars Minute. Uh, They've really uh, shared this type of uh, a podcast with the rest of us. And uh, thanks to them, there's dozens and dozens of shows now that cover movies in this uh, by the minute per episode format and so we just want to give a good shout out to them and say thanks and if you know if you would like to catch up on uh, you guys who really know how to make these kind of things go check out starwarsminute.com but join us back here tomorrow on rocketeerminute.com and we'll talk more about uh, the GB and uh, Chaplin Field where all this may or may not be taking place so we'll see you here tomorrow on the Rocketeer Minute until next time over and out (laughs) 